morning, church. Thank you, Kelly. Beautiful job, and certainly that's our hope that the world can see Jesus in us. Turn again, if you would, to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and we're going to begin looking in verse number 19, the subject of safe and secure. You will notice if you're using your outline that I got in a rare alliterating mood. In fact, buddy, I want you to take special notice that it's double alliterated. Buddy's the only one that can really connect with that, I guess. Safe and secure. What would it be like if when you were growing up, you never knew whether you were in the family or out? What if your being a part of the family depended on how you performed that day? If you did well, then your father loved you, but mess up just even one time and you're out of the family. Sounds like a recipe for raising a psychopath. But the fact is that that is the experience of many people spiritually. Fact is that you were all you will always be a member of the physical family that you were born into. There's nothing that anyone can ever do to change that fact. But this is also true spiritually. Yet many good Christians are tormented by the insecurity that they have because they do not understand or they cannot accept the truth of eternal security. In our last study in John, we saw, John, saw Jesus reveal himself as the good shepherd. We're told that that teaching and the things that Jesus had said resulted in a division among the people in their reception to Jesus. Verse 19 says, therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings and many of them said he has a demon and is mad why do you listen to him and others said these are not the words of one who has a demon can a demon open the eyes of the blind some said that Jesus was insane and then there were others who took the opposite view I do want you to note that between verse 21 and verse 22, two or three months pass. And in verse 22 we read, Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. The verse says that it is now winter. It is December by our calendar, and actually it is the 25th of December. And it is the time for another feast. It is called the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is still celebrated today in Israel. It is called Hanukkah. The history of that is in 175 B.C., Israel had a Syrian overlord by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. It was his desire to mix Hebrew and Greek culture. But this attempt of his had catastrophic consequences. He desecrated the temple, he forced the priest to eat pork, and he used the chambers of the temple as a brothel. 
He even took the altar of burnt offering and made it an altar to Zeus. This led to rebellion led by the name, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus. He led a rebellion that fought and defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. And after this success, Judas Maccabeus led the cleansing of the temple and its rededication to the service of Jehovah. It was this that is being celebrated. It was a feast that lasted eight days with a candle to be lit each day. A tradition that, as I said before, continues even in our day. The reason for the eight-day celebration was that it was told that when the temple had been purified and the great seven-branched uh, candlesticks relit, there was only one container of unpolluted oil that could be found. That container was still intact. It still had the seal of the ring of the high priest. By all normal measures, there was only enough oil in that container to light the lamps for one single day. But by a miracle, it lasted for eight days until new oil had been prepared according to the correct formula and had been consecrated by the priest for sacred use. That's the reason they celebrate for eight days. As we look at the story this morning, I want you to notice, first of all, there was an intense encounter. It says in verse 23, Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and then the Jews surrounded him. Now, when you see the word Jews here, they are specifically talking about the Jewish religious leadership, not all the Jews blanket, but uh, the Jewish religious leadership. It says, then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. These Jewish religious leaders' hostile intent is fairly obvious. It says they surrounded him. That's exactly what it means that they did. And evidently, they also had stones in their hand, even as they gathered. Their question was, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, you may wonder at first if the Jews' request was sincere, but I don't believe that it was. They were not coming to Jesus with the attitude, well, we're willing to follow you, we're willing to accept you as our Messiah if you'll just clear up a few questions. In reality, they are blaming Jesus for their unbelief. They are saying, in effect, it's your fault that we do not understand. If you would just make yourself clear Maybe we could believe in you. Now, in truth, Jesus has not publicly declared himself saying, I am the Messiah. This is probably because most of the Jews misunderstood what the Messiah was going to be. They were looking for a political and military deliverer who would deliver them from the oppression of Rome. But in his private conversations with his disciples, he had plainly declared himself as the Messiah. These religious leaders ask a question because, in truth, they had an agenda. 
They wanted Jesus to declare himself king of the Jews in order that they might accuse him before the Roman governor. In their demand for more proof, they are brazenly suggesting that the proofs that Jesus has already given are not enough. Second, look at the insightful explanation as Jesus answers their question. Jesus answered and said, I told you and you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I have said to you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There are two proofs that he sets forth. First of all, the proof of his words. And it is found in the phrase, I told you. What has Jesus told them? Well, I told you that I am the one that came from heaven. I told you that whoever believes on me has eternal life. I told you that I am the unique son of God. I told you that all of the scriptures speak of me. I told you that I perfectly reveal the person of God the Father. I told you that I am uniquely sent from God. I told you that before Abraham was, I am. I told you I am the bread of life. I told you I am the light of the world. I told you I am the door. I told you I am the shepherd. The problem wasn't that Jesus was unclear about who he was and where he came from. The problem was that these religious leaders had hearts of unbelief that they wanted not only to continue in, but to blame on Jesus. Notice Jesus says, but you, and if you have a King James Version, you'll see it's ye. That means it's you, plural, all of you, you, all of you, are in the same predicament. It denotes that they have a present attitude of unbelief, and it is not simply a past state, but it is continuing, and it is, in fact, the root problem. Now, notice he says, not only the proof of my words, but the proof of my works. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. The works that Jesus is speaking of is his miracles. I think it's important that we recognize the word miracle is different from the way we often use the word miracle. We say anything that is wonderful or awe-inspiring is a miracle. The birth of a baby, coming through a difficult surgery, surviving a terrible car accident. But in the Bible, a miracle was recognized as as something that went beyond the natural. In other words, it had no human explanation. It was supernatural. Now, we have to look at the miracles that Jesus has performed. He's turned the water into wine. He's fed the 5,000. He walked on the Sea of Galilee. He gave sight to a man born blind. These were not ordinary events. These were extraordinary events. They gave the very uniqueness of Jesus Christ. They were evidence of God's involvement in his life. Yet none of those miracles 
that they knew and had heard about produced faith. Instead, these religious leaders became increasingly hardened in their rejection of Jesus. Look then at the provisions of belonging to Jesus. Verse 28, and I gave them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. The first thing that we see here is the gift of eternal life. This is without a doubt, one of the greatest truths in the Bible, the promise of life eternal. Eternal life, by its very description, is not temporary. If it can be lost, it is not eternal. Yet some people think that you can be saved today and lost tomorrow. They suffer unnecessarily all of their lives under the mistaken belief that you can lose your salvation. They sincerely believe that you can be saved today and Satan can come and take away from you that salvation tomorrow. Well, let me read to you John 10, 28 and 29 again. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my father's hands. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I want you to see the symbolism here. Jesus is saying that he puts his hand over the believer's life, his eternal existence. Jesus puts his hand over our lives upon our salvation. And then he says, and then the father places his hand over my hand and no one is ever able to take anyone away from that security. We can be thankful that we're not saved and kept by our own works. The reason that I can believe so firmly in eternal security is that it has nothing to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with you. Our eternal security is not dependent upon ourselves. It is dependent upon Jesus. It does not depend upon our performance, but rather on his promise and on his and the Father's power. As the venerable old commentator from years ago, J.C. Ryle says, Christ declares that his people shall never perish. Weak as they are, they shall be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they will be brought back. If they fall, they will be raised. Secondly, notice no one can snatch a believer from eternal life. When Jesus says no one can snatch a believer, what is included in that no one? Well, the answer is everything. Time is included since it has no effect on God. Death is included since God is the maker and the giver of life. Sin is included because sin is unable to snatch a true believer from eternal life. God defeated sin by the death of his son on the cross. Well, what about earthly powers, kings, generals, captains of industry? They are a part of this no one since God 
rules over them? What about spiritual powers, Satan and his minions? The Bible shows that Satan can go no further in his wicked schemes than God allows him to. In his letter to the church at Rome, the apostle Paul voiced that question in Romans chapter 8 and verse 35. Who shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ? He answered his own question in verse 38 and 39. He said, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. One last thing in these verses, and that is his statement, he and the Father are one. What does Jesus mean when he says, I and the Father are one? Some say that Jesus' statement that he and the Father are one means nothing more than he and the Father are united in purpose and their actions specifically in the keeping of their sheep from the enemy. But Jesus claimed that he gave eternal life to his sheep and his claim to keep them from all predators are more than that, their claims to deity. Neither when he says, I and my Father are one, does he mean that they are the same person as those who hold to Jesus' name only doctrine, those sometimes called oneness or Sabellianism. One in this verse is neuter, which means essence. If he meant that they were of the same person, he would have used a word that was masculine. He's not saying that they are the one and the same person. He's saying they are one and the same, equal in nature and in essence. The third thing that I want you to see this morning is the intended execution. It says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Now, you realize if you're in the equivalent of the foyer, you're not going to find a lot of stones there in order to accomplish this. They had to bring them with them. They were already prepared. Jesus answered and said, many good works I have shown you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. The Jewish religious leaders by their reaction demonstrated that they clearly understood what many Jehovah Witnesses seem to miss today, and that is that Jesus clearly claimed to be God. There is no mistake. The religious leaders were wrong in their response of trying to stone him, but there can be no doubt that they understood that Jesus was claiming to be God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent in the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe in me. But if I do, though you do not believe in me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. That quote, Ye are gods. Get so taken out of context. 
He does need some explanation. Some people, such as the Mormons, use Jesus' quote of this verse to argue that all believers, you and I, we're all ultimately going to become gods. That, of course, is preposterous. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus did not take the statement, you are gods, and apply it to all of humanity or even to all of believers. It is a metaphor. He is <clears throat> quoting from the book of Psalms. The Psalms reveal that the judges of ancient Israel ruled with God's authority. This quote that comes from Psalms 82 condemns the corrupt judges of Israel. Their proper role should have been to act as God's representative under his authority to administer justice in the land. The psalmist referred to them as gods not because they were divine in some sense, but because they are acting as God in their role of judges. Jesus' argument here is from the lesser to the greater. If mere men can be called gods because they're their position of judges, how much more can it be shed of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent to be called the Son of God. Fourth and finally, the incredible escape. Therefore they sought him again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that Jesus spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. How did Jesus get away? This could have been a miracle in which God blinded the eyes of the Jewish religious leaders long enough for Jesus to escape. He'd done that before. But I prefer to think of it as the mere presence of Jesus was so commanding that no one dared to lay a hand on him. Later, when they came to arrest him with a mob of men, and they asked Jesus, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And he responded with simply the words, I am he. We're told that every one of those men fell backwards onto the ground. There's an old classic movie starring Charlton Heston entitled Ben-Hur. It was based on a book written by Lou Wallace of the same title, but it had, was subtitled A Tale of Christ. I especially appreciate the way that it portrayed Jesus and his commanding presence. Ben-Hur has been imprisoned by the Romans and he's being taken away to a galley ship to become a slave. He had dropped to the ground from exhaustion and he was thirsty and he cried out, God, help me. At that moment, the film shows Jesus from behind. It never really shows his face. Stooping down to give Ben-Hur a drink, the Roman soldier in charge yelled to Jesus to leave the man alone and raised his whip. Jesus turned and looked at that threatening soldier who just stood there in awe as he looked at the face of Jesus. Slowly, he lowered the whip and he turned away while Jesus gave Ben-Hur a drink of water. That scene, I think, effectively communicates that Jesus has a commanding presence that showed him to be God. 
Jesus later stated in John chapter 10 and verse 18, no one has taken my life away from me, but I'd laid down of my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus was not a helpless victim. He was always in control, even over his own death and resurrection. His words, his works, his person all show him to be God. The last word here in our text, there, emphasize the contrast in Jerusalem where you would have thought Jesus would have been welcomed as the Messiah, he was rejected. But there, outside of Judea, although John the Baptist has already been killed, it says that many believed in Jesus because of the witness of John coupled with the presence of Jesus himself. There seems to be a parallel here with chapter 4 where the despised Samaritans believed in Jesus not only because of the woman's witness, the woman at the well, but also because of the direct contact with Jesus. I think there's also a practical application for us here. Fact is that you may, may never see, you may never live to see, exactly how much impact God has used you for. You may never live to see the impact of your witness for Christ on this side of heaven. But we should continue to faithfully try to lead and point people to Jesus. John the Baptist did not live to see those people come to faith. But his witness was a key factor in their faith even though he was no longer around. There's no question... that Jesus said the good shepherd. The only question that really remains is, do you know the shepherd? Can you say, as David said in Psalm 23, the Lord, he is my shepherd. Not just a shepherd, but my shepherd. And how you answer that question determines where you're going to spend eternity. Your answer to that question will make all the difference between heaven and hell. If you know the shepherd, then you can rejoice in that fact, and he will be with you forever. And he will watch over you forever. If you don't know him, then I invite you to come to him right now. Delay is dangerous. Come to Jesus today, and he will save your soul. He will place you in the flock. He will give you a new life and a new birth. And for those of you that are Christians this morning, I close with what John wrote much later, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. He says, I've written these things that you might know. Those of you who have placed your faith and trust and believe in Jesus, I have written these things that you might know that you have eternal life. It is God's will that you know. This is too important a matter to ever end the story for any day on I hope so. I'm trying my best. John says, God wants you to be able to say, I know. I know I have eternal life. Let's pray. We are grateful, Father.
that we can know that we're saved. Not as a means of bragging, certainly not a means of, uh, <clears throat> of taking for granted our lives and living as if we're not saved. But simply the knowledge that our eternal security is not bound up in ourselves, but rather it's bound up in the promise that Jesus made and in the power that he manifested. Father, if there's one here today that doesn't know you in a personal, intimate way, don't know for sure that they're saved, would you speak to their hearts this morning? I believe with my whole heart that it is your will that everyone know where they stand with you. And if there's one who's struggling with that this morning, I pray that you'd make it very real to them and be able to establish their relationship in you. Father, I pray that you'd guide and direct in the invitation yet ahead, asking Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to have a...